Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk, Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's Christmas week. We've got here, uh, don't worry, notwithstanding the fact that you can't go anywhere, you know, you won't be able to get anywhere on a plane, you won't be able to go anywhere on a train, you won't be able to go anywhere in a car, you won't be able to go anywhere basically at all. So just enjoy it. Sit back, watch Talk TV and we will give you all the information you will ever need. Of course, many of you, even if you weren't watching uh, the World Cup final last night, uh, will have realised that there are two things that have come out of it. One... Gary Neville is a pound shop Gary Lineker. Two, the Qataris know how to throw a party because not only did they throw a pretty good World Cup, notwithstanding uh, the ins and outs of the uh, complaints from the BBC, the complaints from Gary Neville, the complaints from Gary Lineker, the complaints from all sorts of uh, Harry Kane's of the world, the people who didn't want to have it there but went along anyway. What we do know is that they're very good at putting on a party. You might not be able to have a drink, but it's not that bad. Lionel Messi, of course, was left standing there uh, holding the World Cup. But instead of seeing him in his kind of ordinary, what you might expect, Argentinian shirt, you saw him in a kind of rather slightly odd-looking uh, sort of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a bit of a throw, a scarf of some kind, uh, a Middle Eastern piece of clothing uh, which was draped over his shoulders to make it look as if he was, in fact, in Qatar. We'll be talking about all of that, of course. We'll also be talking about the misappropriation of all manner of things, including some of your own parcels, because... It's come to my notice that an awful lot of people who have tried to get parcels delivered to their homes have actually found that an impossible task, not least because the courier companies will just drop it anywhere. Some of the courier companies are better than others. The Royal Mail, of course, has also been on strike, so a lot of their parcels are never to be seen again. We talked to you last week about the rats and the foxes eating into them, uh, which has gone viral for about the last five days on every single social media platform you can imagine. Uh, There's also a big story coming up around about 10.30 where the High Court is going to decide whether the government's policy on shipping illegal migrants out to Rwanda is in fact legal. We shall find out what all of that means. Meanwhile, Britain could be welcoming in about a million migrants a year to help fill jobs that British people don't want to do. Lots to talk about in that arena. Of course, we've got Frank Ferradi up first. He's a sociology professor who's going to tell us all about uh, what the culture wars mean. Post-World Cup, now that we get back to normal. Mark Saggers is here as well. Ben Clapworthy, Alp Mehmet is going to be here. We're going to talk as well uh, to Jasmine Burzel. Because if you have 
lost the parcel and nobody's going to help you get it back and nobody's going to give you a refund and you haven't got enough money to buy another one, we'll tell you what your actual rights are because I think that's an important story, particularly around this time of year. The cold snap has gone, by the way. Uh, it's warm and wet out there. It's pretty horrible, pretty nasty. Uh, a bit of flooding, of course, but so uh, we'll keep you updated on the weather, of course, as well. Lots more to do between now and one o'clock. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. And let's have a look at some of the headlines this morning. In the hand of God. There he is, Lionel Messi, holding up uh, that particular World Cup, of course. Greatest World Cup final since, it says, 1966. And here's a great one. Airport strikes to wreak havoc, front page of the Times. Airport strikes to wreak havoc. Ben Clapworthy will be here to tell us more about that later on uh, today. But let us go, without further ado, to Professor Frank Ferrady, author, sociologist, a man uh, with his finger very much on the pulse of the nation. Frank, a very good um, morning to you. Greetings of the season. I suppose I can now say, because it is Christmas week, uh, greetings of the season, because uh, it doesn't feel that Christmassy because everything's going to be disrupted. But how are you? I'm well, and uh, are we allowed to say Merry Christmas? Certainly, or... you certainly can say Merry Christmas. The only reason I Merry Christmas. The only reason I haven't said it yet is that I don't feel very Christmassy. But you, you, you yeah. help yourself. You know, as, as uh, apart from anything else, it's unusual to say it the day after the World Cup final. I know that was a, a remarkable World Cup final. It, it didn't feel right in some ways until the very last match. But yes. the uh, the final uh, game was just fantastic and uh, quite memorable. It really was. And famously, um, of course, ruined by somebody called Gary. You know, Gary Lineker stopped uh, everybody at the beginning of it to make sure that they listened to his diatribe about human rights. And then he sort of behaved himself for the rest of it. And then Gary Neville picked up the gauntlet like a sort of pound shop version of the Match of the Day host and went off on some mad rant yesterday. I know. I know. Well, anyway, I've learned over the years not to trust anybody called Gary. Uh, there are a few honourable exceptions, but uh, certainly these uh, two guys demonstrate that there's a problem there. And I think what's really worrying to me is that there are people who are determined to politicise football as they are determined to politicise every single sport. Yes. So we have the Garys in, on this side of the pond. On the other side of the pond, you have uh, newspapers like the Washington Post basically criticising the Argentinian team for being too white. Yes, brilliant. As if somehow that was like a cultural sin. They would never actually uh, argue that the the, the, Ghana, the team from Ghana or Nigeria or Senegal was too black. But for some reason, it's in their head that they have to racialize every single uh, event, you know, whether it's football or the theater or or just about anything. Yes. And I, and, and, and I was a little bit disappointed that when you have all these... Uh, mean-spirited commentators using football in that kind of a way, it does distract from the pleasure and the joy of watching a really great football match. Exactly right. But, of course, the Washington Post, like many um, media organisations now, is not the behemoth that it used to be in the days of Woodward and Bernstein. It's now been taken over, I think, by Jeff Bezos, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, if you read the Washington Post, uh, you don't need to have a PhD in journalism to know uh, what the article is going to be about. It's so predictable, the moans and the groans and the, and the whining that they've turned into an art form, along with the New York Times, indicates that there's this real impulse to somehow turn every single uh, joyous 
positive experience into a problem. And it's almost like they're looking for problems to solve, pro even problems that don't exist. Mm. Uh, that's American journalism for you in the 21st century. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable how American journalism has deteriorated, isn't it? I mean, it really is awful. I see it uh, from time to time, obviously, online. But when I was there as well, I mean, the newspapers, I used to pick up a copy of the New York Times in the morning and just think, well, I'll just go, there'll be something in here that I can find to read, which is of some use. There's literally nothing, nothing in the New York Times at all worth a fag end. I know, and uh, I used to read the New York Times every day. I loved reading it. But now when you read the New York Times, they've got these specializations, so they really have it in for Britain. And every time the word Britain is mentioned, it's kind of mentioned as a, as a kind of dead-end country that's yes. more or less finished that's in decline, that, that is continually has got to all kinds of problems, you know, government failure, cultural failure. British people have every single uh, sort of uh, disease that you can imagine from being homophobic to being patriotic to being racist. Yeah. They have this kind of fantasy of, of Britishness. Uh, it's almost as if it was invented by Walt Disney. Right. Where this is like the horror show. This is come to Britain and you expect to be either in purgatory or in hell. <laughs> Well, this is the thing. I mean, when I started going to America in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, you'd run into people who would ask you questions like, is it really foggy in London? And I was used to tell them it was. Yeah, absolutely. You can't see across the street. It's an absolute nightmare. This is sort of the new version of that, you know. It's the, it's the sort of post-Netflix view uh, of Americans who have never been out of the country who go, oh, yeah, it must be terrible there. And it's the same thing, isn't it? It's just ignorance. It's ignorance. And I think what's even worse is they got this uh, belief that we're really badly off. I'm not saying that we're flourishing and thriving, but we're not that badly off. But when you look at our problems and you compare it to the United States, if you kind of contrast New York to London, you'll find out that London is an entirely different league. We haven't got garbage thrown all over the streets. We haven't got the high levels of crime uh, that afflicts New York. And just in general, when you walk around Manhattan these days, it feels dirty and grimy in the way that it wasn't in the past. And, yes. Uh, no, I've, you know, I've not been back to Manhattan since COVID because I fear that I will hate it so much that I'll never return because I used to love living there. I used to love the yeah, vibe yeah. of the place and they killed it off. Um, successive kind of de Democrat mayors who just turned it into an absolute kind of pile of dung, really. And I'm not really very interested in going. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's a tragedy because as a very young man, I used to love hanging out in Manhattan uh, and there was that kind of sense of possibilities and freedom yeah. that you associate with America, that pioneering spirit, and that's just gone. It, instead what you have is essentially this very woke, culture warish kind of uh, culture. You go into a museum and every picture that you look at has got a warning sign on it telling you that this painter was you know, bad to his children in 1843 mm. or this painting was painted by a, a, a man whose second grandfather was a racist. Yeah. There's a, almost like a, a compulsion to criticise everything that is beautiful yeah. at museums. Well, yeah. I mean, it became this peak thing, didn't it, with Gary Neville last night, because there is no perspective anymore, particularly from the wokists, you know. like So if you start criticising Qatar because their workers' rights are not great, um, he starts equating it with Britain. And you go, sorry? You know, I mean, there's a piece of video, which is hilarious. I would urge you to go and find it, that Gary Neville put out, where before he went to Qatar for the World Cup, he goes out on a sort of mission and describes the... Um, and he's obviously doing it uh, for a podcast or a vodcast of some kind. He's describing 
the, the beautiful new stadium says, breathtaking and amazing. And then you get some guy on, who I think is the head of the Qatar World Cup committee, um, and he puts it to him that there are lots of people who say that, uh, who are said to have died. And the guy goes, no, that's all lies. It's all rubbish. It's not true. Uh, there's only three. And that's the end of the interview. It's not like he presses him. He doesn't say anything else. So this is his version of kind of, you know, uh, giving uh, air and, and, and airtime to something that he doesn't agree with. But it's pathetic. It really is. And to say that because somehow this government is denying a pay rise to nurses and train drivers is the same. Okay. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think what uh, Gary is doing is try to get maximum publicity for himself. Yeah. He's been doing that for a while, and he's continually making off-the-cuff comments about all kinds of things, just as a way of projecting himself into the public domain. I, I think he wants to uh, somehow trump the other Gary and, and kind of gain a degree of authority. Yeah. It's highly intellectual, you know, politically sus, socially concerned, football commentator yeah and that's in the end that's all he is let's talk a little bit more about the uh, migrant situation but i want you to take a little short break because coming up at 10 30 uh, we don't know yet what the ruling will be but the courts are going to rule on whether or not it's in fact legal for people in this country to be deported having come here illegally to rwanda we'll bring you that of course as it happens 0344 499 1000 is the number uh, here's one from uh, uh, dave in bristol mike he says good morning you and i both know the decision the woke liberal lefty judges are going to arrive at over rwanda don't we well i don't know that's why we bring it to you live when it happens i'm not absolutely sure what's going to happen we'll let you know as soon as we do but we'll come back very soon with more with Professor Frank Frey. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Frank Ferradi about a great many things, including, Frank, I wanted to mention, uh, I read your piece last night, your substack about history uh, returning to Europe and the kind of uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, sort of focusing the minds of an awful lot of people. One of the things that I found remarkable yesterday at the World Cup final was old President Emmanuel Macron running around trying to get his arms around um, Mbappe and Mbappe kind of shrugging him off like, would you mind leaving me alone? I'm not feeling very happy about losing the World Cup. Yeah, I think the that image of Macron as sort of uh, looking like a jumped-up bank manager who's trying to get as much attention as possible was yes. very, as was Mbappe's rejection of him. But uh, you have to remember that Macron is probably the most serious political leader in Western Europe at the, in, on the on the EU uh, side of things, mm. and therefore he does have a disproportionate amount of influence over proceedings within the European Union, which obviously has a, an impact upon us here in Britain. And I think it's a sign of the times that you have such lightweights having, you know, having such an important role in, in, in the future of, of the European continent. So it is worrying that uh, we're now uh, suffering from a leadership bypass throughout much of the world. And uh, maybe that's even afflicting us here in Britain. Yes, well, I wouldn't be at all surprised um, because there is, um, and there has ever been, I suppose, you know, political uh, kudos to be had from a, a, a sort of aligning yourself with the cool people. Do you remember Tony Blair in Cool Britannia when he used to invite people like Oasis into Downing Street to try and make it look as if, you know, he had his finger on the pulse of the youth of today, not realising, in fact, that all the people he was inviting in were actually all millionaires? Yes, sir. I think uh, the funniest story about this is happened uh, 10 days ago in Brussels, where the European Union wanted to be really cool 
uh, and suggest the fact that it's really in touch with young people and new technology. So it spent 300,000 euros throwing a party uh, for young people to come along and, and enjoy the EU vibe. In the event, what happened was that six people showed up. <laughs> six people for a 300,000 uh, sort of euro party. I thought that, was, that really summed up that kind of sad impulse to be in with the young and also the, the, just how out of touch the European Union is with the everyday life of, of young, young youngsters and young people in Europe. Yeah, well, when you hang around with Qatari diplomats and you carry around sacks of money, you know, you tend to be not really in a position to see what's going on the street. Well, they don't have to. I mean, you know, there's a lot of cash floating around, you know, sort of, uh, and you almost get the impression that there is now a, a horrible situation where corruption has literally become institutionalized mm. in, in the European Union and where there's a kind of attempt to simply say, oh, it's just a few bad apples. Yeah. Forgetting the fact that a, a rotten apple is going to somehow rot the whole barrel altogether. And mm. that's really what we're what seeing in Brussels. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about the, the situation with the strikes here in the UK. We're talking about ambulance strikes this week. Um, I'm hearing noises from various uh, unions saying, well, of course, if the government sits down, we can call all these strikes off. But we've seen the rail strikes have, have pretty much crippled anybody's ability to go anywhere. The nurses strike on Thursday... Still very much, I would say, about 50-50 in terms of whether public support is going to go up or down. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I think there's a, an understandable element in this. So a lot of people are uh, feeling the pinch. They feel that their living standard has declined quite dramatically in recent years. Uh, it's very difficult for you to see the big picture and realize that uh, there's only so much uh, resources available uh, in, in the public purse to provide people with, with wage rises. So I think that uh, there is a kind of dilemma here. On the one hand, you can understand why people are striking, uh, particularly in national health, but also in, in the other sectors. But at the same time, I, I think what is uh, a little bit worrying is that these strikes seem to be having this kind of drip, drip effect. They're, they're not strikes that can be resolved because when you go out for two days here, one day there, all you're doing is disrupting the public. Uh, rather than actually, you know, sort of putting pressure on the employers in the way that labor movement people used to do in the past. Mm. And therefore what happened is that we in the public end up paying the price for, uh, for activities and actions that aren't going to make, uh, have very much of an you know, impact on anybody. So the sad thing is, is that the strikes will continue. And the government, you know, even with the, with the best will in the world, will not be in the position at the moment to actually provide uh, uh, public sector workers with the resources they wish to, to acquire. So it's a very difficult and, 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 and ambiguous situation that we're in. Uh, and all the while we forget that if we hadn't spent all that money during the lockdown, mm. during COVID, we were literally printing money all the time. If we hadn't gone into debt in, in such a decisive way, then I think we would have resources today to provide a, a, an, an improved offer to, to most workers in the mm. public sector. And it was interesting watching um, Sunday morning TV yesterday with some of the various interviews where uh, Oliver Dowden was on uh, the BBC and he was trying to explain why the government had decided they couldn't afford to pay the nurses. And they spent about five minutes arguing the toss about the figures as to whether it was going to cost 28 billion or 14 billion. I mean, it doesn't really matter. The point is surely, you know, the, the problem we have at the moment is that one side uh, is painting a narrative of starving, you know, awful, you know, 
um, denigrated people who are at their wits end, um, which is clearly not true. Uh, and the government is saying that they haven't got any money, despite the fact they've given loads of it away to everybody else. And never the twain shall meet. No, I, I think there is a, we've got to get a balanced picture on it. You know, in principle, I would love uh, public sector workers to have uh, more money than is the case at the moment. But when you hear well, stories, some, but not all, though, because some of them are all, doing pretty some, well. The, the ones that deserve it. But the, yeah. but the stories that you're getting circulating, for example, of uh, nurses going around and eating scraps of food. Yeah, I mean, that is obviously rubbish. is weird. Yeah. Or today, there are stories about how three quarters of all teachers are busy you know, washing children's clothes. I don't believe that. No. I cannot imagine 75% of teachers in a school going down to the, you know, to to the, uh, to the to the to the washing machine to wash their pupils. Mm. These things were just made up, so that a, a, a problem that we have is turned into a crisis, and 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 that kind of dramatization, that alarmist rhetoric, is just merely scaring people all around, and that's just going to mean that we're going to lose our self confidence yeah. about facing the future. But I blame the union leaders for this because the union leaders are the punting this this particular narrative that you know they're just going to make anything up, try and make it sound as though the situation is much much worse than it really is. You know, as far as the RMT goes, they keep talking about how they're talk they're they're operating on behalf of the lower end of the people who work in the RMT who are not paid very much money. But some of the people in the upper end they never mention who are making you know upwards of sixty, seventy, eighty thousand pounds a year. Yeah, I th I think the other. The more, in many ways, the more important guilty party is the mainstream media. Yeah. Listen to the BBC. They have these uh, these kind of stories, human interest stories, where you br they bring on, you know, the Today program, a woman who uh, supposedly is really tottering on the edge and is going from one food bank to the other. And, and you imagine that you're living in a very, very poor Asian or African country rather mm. than living in, in England. So when you have these inflations, inflated stories about the, uh, the problem of poverty, uh, then you do begin to lose sight of reality. And, and that kind of propaganda has really seeped into the public imagination. So even people I know personally mm. uh, who don't have the slightest bit of problems are, are certain that it's only a matter of time before they too and their children are going to have to rely on the food bank or yeah. on, on charity. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible to me how people have become so easily influenced by those that they like politically. And so obviously kind of turned off the truth by people they don't like. And I it wouldn't is, say it's on one side or other. It's on both sides, isn't it? It is. And, uh, and people seem to forget what real poverty is like, you know, what it was like in the 1930s, yeah. the Depression, uh, compared to now. I mean, we're living in a, in a wonderful, affluent kind mm. of world. I'm not saying that that's not a, there aren't very many problems, and a lot of people are, aren't struggling. But there's a difference between struggling and, and dealing with the challenge of everyday life, and this fantasy that somehow we've become completely, you know, almost like a, in a in a situation where we're starving. And and this there's a, an expression they're using all the time on the on the BBC, where they bring people on. They say these people have got to make a choice between eating yeah. or heating their house. Right. And I think that that is a slight exaggeration. We, we are. <laughs> having to cut back, but I don't think that people are basically saying we're not going to eat today or we're just going no. to have a cracker or something. Right.
No, I mean, I think if there are people in that situation, that's what the food banks are there for. They're not there to feed nurses on £30,000 a year uh, who somehow can't make ends meet. But Frank, as ever, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Professor Frank Ferrady, author and sociologist. Coming up, uh, we'll bring you that ruling from the High Court about Rwanda, whether or not it's actually legal to deport people. We'll talk to Mark Saggers about the wokest World Cup ever uh, in an unwokest place. Very interesting. Gary Neville, Gary Lineker, Gary, I don't know, Shandling, all sorts of other Garys we may be talking about. Also, of course, coming up, uh, we'll be talking about the parcel problem because there's an awful lot of parcels going missing and we're going to try and find them. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock, of course. We are going to be talking a lot today about the parcel problem. How about this from Colleen? She says, Mike, I'm looking forward to your segment on missing parcels. I'm currently trying to get a refund from J.D. Williams for a parcel supposedly delivered by Every. The courier posted the photograph of the parcel outside my door. I was in at the time, but that's a whole other issue. The parcel wasn't there when I checked. Beginning of my nightmare. To cut a long story short, I fortunately obtained a CCTV image of the courier taking the parcel back out of the building after taking the photograph. Slam dunk. It's now four weeks on and I've not received my refund, which is over £100, despite several acknowledgements that in fact I've been telling the truth and did not receive my parcel. Without the CCTV, I was getting platitudes only. Well, this is what's happening to an awful lot of people. They're getting a picture sent to them by the courier company saying, well, here it is. Here's evidence of it being delivered. But everybody knows that is not evidence of it being delivered. You might as well give it to some bloke passing on a scooter. It's ridiculous, but we'll come back to that because right now we're going to talk to the man of the moment, Mr. Mark Saggers, Talk TV presenter, host, of course, of the Sunday Night Club. Uh, the yeah. World Cup is now over, uh, but the reverberations will continue for a while. Mark, a very good morning to you. Well, good morning to you. You can see actually behind me I've got a lot of books. I'm actually a book collector and seller as well in my part time. Oh. I've given up on Royal Mail. I mean, I can't, I can't say I blame you. I can't even remember when they're on strike or when they're not on strike these days. No, well, they seem it doesn't matter whether they're on strike or not. It has taken uh, 45 days from a letter to go from the East Midlands uh, and uh, along with it, a small book yeah. to the Midlands. Incredible. Absolutely I mean, incredible. incredible. And where it's, is it? A first class. And where oh, is it? Oh, it's, it's, found, it's found its place now, but this is the problem, you see. Right. This is the problem that we've got. I mean, I could have walked there quicker and back. Well, I've, I mean, I, do, I remember when I was in Scotland years ago, we did a little survey to find to discover that it was actually quicker uh, in the days when they used to run mail by horse down from yeah. Edinburgh to London. You actually got it there quicker <laughs> than you do now. You know, I don't know how they manage it, to be honest. But let's well, talk Let's talk about the fabulousness yeah. of the World Cup final because... But absolutely brilliant. The detractors say to me, oh, France weren't in the game for 80 minutes. Well, it doesn't matter. Who cares? No. But after no. that, it was incredible, no. wasn't it? Yeah, the first 70 minutes belonged to uh, Argentina. Messi was running the show and uh, they did so well. And 2-0 uh, up and really they took their, their foot off the gas and, and that allowed somehow France, who'd had a shocker up to that point, to get back into it. Messi and Di Maria, Di Maria scoring one of the best World Cup goals ever. Yes. I mean, it was just a superb second um, for Argentina. Mm. But then it was all about Mbappe. And uh, in he came and, and off he went. And... Uh, 2-2 within a minute, 80 and 81, and uh, everything to play for. And then even then, Messi just showed his quality and class again, uh, scored the third. And then, of course, it was once more an equaliser from Mbappe, who's the only the second person ever to score a hat-trick at a World yeah. Cup final. First, of course, being the first. And uh, on the losing side. Well, because, um, incredible, isn't it? Were awful. 
I mean, how the how the hell do you score a World Cup hat trick in the World Cup final and not win it? And then create and then uh, convert the first of your side's penalties in the penalty shootout. Right. So that's four. And uh, amazing, but amazing. But I, you know, it was a great game. It had absolutely everything in that half an hour of extra time. We usually see it where they've sort of they've given up. Fought, haven't they? Most people have given up by that stage, but neither side gave up. And they played the extra. I, at the end of extra time, I didn't want them to go to penalties. I wanted them to carry on playing the way they were till somebody scored. Yes. We've tried all that golden goal and stuff before. It hasn't worked. Penalties for me, I don't like penalties. No. I, I, and, I, and I really, I do have a heart, Mike, and for, for some of those youngsters to miss a penalty in a World Cup final, at the end of a World Cup final, it can happen to anybody. Of course. Messi's even pe- missed a penalty early on in this competition and it'll haunt them. Yeah, for the rest of their lives. But there's no way around that. But it was great. It, and then, of course, the nonsense took over, yeah. as it has done throughout this World Cup. Mm. Suddenly, we've got to Macron as yeah. part of the. Uh, yeah, what the on earth was he giving. thinking? I mean, I, well, I don't know. He got absolutely blanked by Mbappe. That was brilliant. A brilliant piece of footage when <laughs> he's coming out trying to put his arm around Mbappe, who's literally <laughs> looking at him as if I've no idea who you are. Just no, leave me alone. No, get just, lost. Just get up. Um, that we had. Uh, him involved in it. And then, of course, this crowning of Messi to yeah. pick up the trophy with a beast. Yes. I mean, made of camel hair and goat's wool and black with some gold. Yeah. Uh, and it's what the uh, the, the royals wear. Yes. They, I don't know when apparently, they it. Apparently it signifies some kind of warrior status. Yeah, a warrior status. But you know what? That wasn't warrior status, was it? They no. were doing that because look at how much we're all in control. Yes, exactly. The greatest footballer um, that Argentina now have had, and I'll include Maradona in that, wants to lift a World Cup final as captain of the side in his blue and white shirt. Of course he does. He stands there all of a sudden as if he's being sort of sized up for Madden Two Swords. Yeah. And, and of course, Infantino is absolutely over all of it. And and from from that point of view, uh, it left a bad taste again in my mouth. It at did. This World Cup. It did. Unfortunately, I mean, it's been a brilliant World Cup. The football has been fantastic, but actually, around it, there is it, it, there has been chaos mm. a lot of the time. There mm. have been an awful lot of people that we haven't heard about who've you know paid an enormous amount for tickets, and then security hasn't worked for them, and they haven't even got there yeah. um, it, to inside the stadium, and also with everything else that's going on, it has not been a fan World Cup. Argentina's fans have been magnificent. So too are the Moroccans. But, I mean, Qatar don't have any football fans. No. They they came in as if they were just sort of sitting and, and watching other people in a library sort of thing. Right. But there wasn't the real fans. The real fans didn't turn up. So although the press, who seemingly have been sort of, well, there's two people that seem to have done a sort of makeover on them. Firstly, Qatar, right. and secondly, Gareth Southgate. Yeah, I mean, he can't do any wrong. Well, Gareth Southgate he hasn't done anything right. Well, yeah. you'll, you'll be pleased to know, though, Mark, that he's getting another four, yeah, four more years. He's going to have at the very well, least. Well, it will be eventually. Yeah. He's got a two-year contract <laughs> still. Still, he's got two years left still on his contract. So I understand. So he went away to have a think about that, and thought, you know what, for the five million a year I'm going to get for the next two years. 
I'll see it out. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do my I mean, best. It took almost as long to decide whether to do it or not as Alex Scott did, you know, before she went out to Qatar to do Match of the Day coverage when she said, oh, I spent a lot of time thinking about whether I should go. And then suddenly I looked at the size of the cheque and thought, well, all right, then, yeah. you know, we'll see what we can do. Yeah. See, she was uh, spotted in some Qatari government hospitality area yesterday. Uh, yeah, she seems well, to have passed on her armband-wearing escapades. Well, this has been all, all, all of it. I mean, you know, the, the globally... The World Cup, if it's chosen for that country, I didn't agree with that in the first place because I thought it should come to us, but it went to Qatar. So you have to, uh, you don't have to embrace what's happening in Qatar, but we're there for the football. Yeah. And that's why we're there. Not not to, un- or, and to understand a little bit about the country, but, but it, uh, if we don't like the way it is, either you don't go or if you're going to protest, what you do is you protest properly. Yeah. You don't do. I mean, there's more to me and my Gary Neville rant here again, yeah. Mike, because I've watched the, uh, a piece that he has done when he went to question the yes, boss I've of also the migrant seen workers. I've also he seen that. He didn't ask a question. No, he said to and the this guy... this is the problem. No, I mean, this is the problem with elevating these characters into something other than mouthpieces it's, it's a, it, for exactly. whoever happens to be paying them, you know. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, Gary Neville has proven himself to be politically idiotic uh, a complete sort of malcontent and, to be honest, an absolute thicko. Because to say that because the government is not giving in to nurses and train drivers and anybody else that's on strike is somehow you know equitable with uh, Qatar and 6,500 dead migrant workers. I mean, do me a yeah. favour. No, and I'm going to stop you there because I want to actually say, I actually want to read because I watched this bit as to what he said. They're talking about bits and pieces and suddenly he goes, it's worth saying that in our country we have a government this is after he'd said above that about the migrant workers mm. and all the terrible things that had happened in the qatar where he'd gone out and taken the taken the be in money yeah. of course uh, he said it's worth saying that in our country a government is demonizing rail workers and ambulance mm. workers and terrifying nurses who deserve to be able to go on strike for an act a pound or two without being worried or scared. I mean, what's going on? I know. And why are ITV allowing him to even say that? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I suppose every, I'm all for free speech, as you are, and they're not a public service broadcaster, but I'm sure that, A, yet again he's hijacked. He wants to be mayor of Manchester or something, my contacts in Manchester yeah, tell well, me. Yeah, fine. Let him run um, for office then. He, he does this, he does that, of course, and... and, and but it's 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 just weak, and then the and then the other boys still at it on the other side as well. Gary Lindica, mm. I don't think that either of them really. Have you ever seen either of them on a picket line? Have you ever seen either of them no. this or Although that? No, I did I see think... I did see Gary Lineker at one point ha- happened to walk past an RMT picket line up in Manchester one day, and he stopped and had a, and had a chat with them at a nice while he was si- sipping his very expensive cappuccino. Very nice, yeah. very nice moment it was for all of us. But you know, look, <laughs> I mean that's that's exercised me. I don't think it's been great. And quite rightly, the, the, the English and um, British public have had their say, saying, we don't want that when we're just about to watch a World mm. Cup final or just about to see the start of the World Cup. We don't want people looking straight down the camera who are there, uh, who are ex brilliant ex-footballers, but they're certainly... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Not journalists. No. And they're certainly not broadcast journalists. And it's not their place to say that at that stage. And um, I just think, it, it, I, I just don't know what planet they live on. What no. planet they do live on is that obviously it's a delusional one because they are obviously fated by a coterie mm. that now goes with them everywhere, including, of course, um, the leader of the Labour Party, yeah. who's all over Gary Neville like a rash. Oh, I know. Absolutely right. Good to talk to you, Mark. Got to run because we've got some breaking news for you. Mark Sager's there reporting in to us on the World Cup. Lord Justice Lewis and Mr Justice Swift at the High Court have ruled government plans to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda are, wait for it, lawful. So they can go ahead. Brilliant. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk. Brain talk. Unrivaled talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots to do. We've got plenty of time to do it as well. We're here with you, of course, until one o'clock. Al Mehmet has joined us. He's the chairman of Migration Watch. And we're going to discuss the ramifications uh, and the sort of in-depth meaning of what the High Court has just ruled. The High Court having ruled literally in the last 20 minutes uh, that the government's plans to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda are in fact lawful, that they do not breach any international law, they're not breaching the international agreement or any international code, and they can go ahead and send people to Rwanda. So uh, no doubt there'll be a lot of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth from the lefty lawyers and the various charities that brought the case. Also, the UNHCR, uh, which is their refugee arm, um, has also been involved in bringing the case through the High Courts to try and prove that the UK could not send people to Rwanda. It turns out that, yes, you can. We'll be finding out uh, how easy it would be to send a parcel to Rwanda, particularly if you use one of those uh, uh, courier companies. An awful lot of you responding to our clarion call for how difficult it is to get parcels delivered to your house. I don't mind if somebody can't deliver something, but don't tell me a lie about where you've left it. That would be sensible, wouldn't it? 0344 499 1000. Uh, we need, says this, three times in the last two weeks, couriers have turned up with parcels, Mike. If you brought the product like using a reputable credit card, claim the cost of everything back through the card provider. The Every and DPD are both in a mess. Well, you say that, easier said than done, because you can't always claim things back on credit cards depending on what the vendor says. But we'll find an expert to talk to about that. Uh, of course we will do that. I've had so many Amazon parcels go missing that Amazon has sent me a warning that I'm claiming too many refunds and my account with them is in jeopardy says Annie. Goodness gracious me. Well, that really is a proper emergency. Uh, we will be dealing with it. We will be bringing you as much help as possible. Well, let's talk to Alp Mehmet, Chairman of Migration Watch. Alp, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for Good stopping be here, in. Uh, so be. the High Court really, we knew was coming. Um, we're still kind of um, looking at it to see what the ramifications are. But it seems to me that 
basically now the ruling that has been made today will, will enable Rishi Sunak's government to deport people to Rwanda and have them make their claims for asylum actually in Rwanda. Is that right? That, and like you, I've only seen the headlines, yes. really. But yes, that appears to be the case. And, and it's, it's to be welcomed, of course it's mm. to be welcomed. I could also say that uh, the High Court is really stating the obvious, something mm. that we, we knew all along. But no matter, let's not be churlish. No. I think uh, that it's the, it's the right decision. Mm. It's really now a matter of what will the government do? And what will the lawyers do? I'm, uh, frankly, I wouldn't hold my breath mm. that these uh, deportations, these removals, yeah. will actually start anytime soon. But at least it's another step in the right yes. direction, a significant step. Well, when Rishi Sunak got up last week and made his kind of five-point plan, one, uh, one point of which was to say anyone who comes here illegally uh, will not be allowed to stay here for, at any point. They'll never be able to be granted the right to remain. Um, however, it was pointed out at the time that that would need legislation in order to make that happen. But I wonder whether this will let them actually take some of the new arrivals and say, right, you cannot claim asylum here, but if you want to claim asylum in this country, you get on this plane, you go to Rwanda, you do it there. Yeah, possibly. But what, what I would also say, uh, much as I welcomed a lot of what Rishi Sunak said last week, the fact is that I recall Boris Johnson also saying that if you arrive here illegally, you'll be sent back. Yes. Well, what happened to that commitment? Mm. However, I, I will say that uh, Rishi Sunak has finally shown the sort of resolve from number 10. And that's where it was lacking before. Mm. Whatever Pretty Patel was doing, frankly, she seldom had support from number 10. Yeah. Suella Braverman now, who I think has got the right ideas, will at least have support from number 10. Mm. What policy eventually ends up uh, coming into re reality, yeah. I'm not sure, but certainly... There, the signs are reasonable now that there's going to be effort made yes. to solve this problem in I the think channel. So. And I think also what's good is that Rishi Sunak clearly had put quite a lot of work into it and quite a lot of thought had gone into those five points that he made. Whereas with Boris, he would always go, he's just kind of come up with his plan five minutes before he said it and just said, well, this is what we're going to do. But actually with Rishi Sunak, it seemed as though he does have a point... Uh, of sort of progress, if you like. So first he's going to introduce uh, this idea that you can't come here illegally and expect to stay, that if you want to apply for asylum, you're going to have to do it in Rwanda now, because they did say they were going to re reinforce the Rwanda flights, didn't they? Um, they and did. also they're going to they change did. the law on this business of um, being trafficked and, and, and the, the Slavery Act. Yeah, I, and, and I, I gather that he's been talking to Theresa May, who introduced the... Mm. Uh, Modern Slavery Act, of course. And, and there are a lot of good bits in that. It's just the way it's being used or mm. abused that is the problem now. And I, I think that the government has some, finally seen sense and is going to address that. Yeah. I mean, other things that he said last week that uh, I, I think were, were helpful were, uh, for example, the additional resources that are now going to be placed mm. at the disposal of those who are dealing with the problem. Right. And that, that is really quite significant, the numbers of people dealing with it, um, the speed with which decisions are going to be made. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, I hope that those decisions are not going to become 
a, a box ticking exercise mm. so that anyone who's applied just to get rid of them, get them out of the system, is going to be given leave to remain mm. or, or granted asylum. I hope that doesn't happen. So long as it doesn't happen, I think it's a good idea to deal with them quickly and then remove them. And today's decision will help yes. in that direction. And also it's a recognition, it seems to me, of a kind of a, glo a global problem that Britain is part of and that Britain will have to do something about. Whereas before there's been this sense that, oh, maybe it will just go away. You know, like we managed to get rid of people coming on uh, lorries. That was stopped because of higher security at Calais, higher security, all of the kind of the various jumping on points, if you like. But then they all moved onto the boats because it seemed that that was a very easy way to get here. And it still is. But if they can make it... Uh, clear to those people traffickers and the people coming that if you do come here there's a pretty good chance you're not going to be able to stay I think they'll stop coming Mike that's home of common sense so I, I'm <laughs> expecting that sort of mm. comment it is it's it's absolutely that which drives those coming across mm. the channel the fact that they know having arrived here there's very little chance of them ever being removed and guess what a lot of those coming over have already applied for asylum and been rejected yes. throughout Europe. Uh, in 2019, something like one in six of those who came over were had already applied and been rejected. Yeah. Well, one in six of 45,000 um, suggests that the number is very high. Yes. So it's, it's no good saying that France or whoever take in more. They don't. Mm people arrive there but in fact when they consider applications for asylum by and large it's something like 20 percent of those who apply in in france are rejected at first instance yes. sorry and then where do they go 80 uh, percent they, they come, come here, here presumably. yeah yeah but overall the eu it's 39 percent mm. who are allowed yeah with us it's 70%, mm. 75%. Yeah. So double the EU rate and more than three times the French rate yes. for allowing. And we're a much smaller country as well, aren't we? Which, which is what has caused an awful lot of problems. We, we are uh, something like three times as crowded as, uh, as France, yes. frankly. Absolutely right. So as far as um, the Labour Party's response and the lawyers' response, we await what they're going to say. The UN hasn't said anything yet either. But Yvette Cooper uh, is the kind of um, go-to person they seem to be saying already i don't know how they've worked this out that if the labor government was to be the next government that she would be the next home secretary i don't know who's worked that out but i guess uh, if that's what she says that's what we are supposed to believe she's kind of hinted that she would like to see migration numbers coming down but then she's hidden behind the fact that they're higher because of ukraine and because of hong kong uh that's part of yeah. it but bearing in mind that we had over half a million net migration and uh, Hong Kong, uh, Ukraine, Afghanistan, mm. that was a proportion, I think around 140,000. That still leaves something like a third of a million net migration. That's totally unsustainable. Mm. Right. Um, we only have to look back to the census result just a few weeks ago, yeah. which effectively showed that over 20 years we'd had an increase of 10 million people in mm. our population and in fact it was something like 7 or 8 million was the result of immigration mm. we can't we can't 
continue that way. No. We can't have that number of people adding to our population mm. annually. It's a nonsense. Well, this is the thing. I mean, talking to and listening to quite a lot of the NHS workers, the people who represent the Royal College of Nursing, uh, people who are in the front line of medicine are saying, well, the thing is, you know, we've now, you might say the government have given us more money, but we've got more people to look after. Now, when you say to them, well, why do you think that is? Nobody ever goes, well, it's because we've got 10 million extra people living here. And I'm not saying it's only the fault of people who have come to live here, but you can't pretend that it hasn't had a massive effect on the NHS. No, uh, uh, that's exactly it. Happening at a time when the numbers of people being trained and the number of doctors, nurses in the NHS has, over a lot of that period, been falling. So, of course, you're going to have pressures if you've got people arriving at the rate that mm. they are. But the other thing that we often hear is that uh, we, we've got to have these young people coming in. And most of them, certainly across the channel, something like 70% are young men. Yes. Um, they say, yeah, we, we've got to have them because we've got an ageing population. Well, if you're having people to right. stay in this country, for goodness sake, as I can testify and have said before on right. this programme, even young migrants age. So mm. all you're doing is, in fact adding to the future problem, which is going to be much more uh, significant yeah. than it is even Also, if now. you're allowing people to come into this country as young men, uh, but you're not letting them work, what are they doing? You know, they probably are working, they're just not working in what you, would, what you and I would call uh, the, the regular economy. They're working in a different economy, which is inevitably the black economy. It might not be illegal work they're doing, but it's certainly under the table cash-only money. Yeah, on, on that point, Mike... Um, and, and now there's there's a lot of people saying, well, why don't we allow people who arrive here illegally, mm. if they're in the system and have been here for six months, a year, whatever, let's allow them to work. Yeah. I, I would counsel caution, yes. because all that is going to do is send the message that, don't worry, come in, keep your head down for six months and you'll be allowed to work right. and then they'll never remove you. And then they'll never find you as well. That's the other thing, isn't well, it? Well, um, the, the, the problem is that even when... The main problem is that we've stopped looking, frankly. Mm. Mm. And even when we do find people, we're doing very little about it. Right. And we've even got serious criminals, frankly, who are being set free uh, because we can't remove them. Yes. That, that's wrong. It is. And most people in this country would say that's wrong. Of course they would, because the country is being taken advantage of, and I think that is what most people are fed up with, and we don't want to do that anymore. But the news here breaking, Lord Justice Lewis, Mr Justice Swift at the High Court, have ruled government plans to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda are lawful. So we'll wait, I guess, from uh, later on today to get a statement from either Rishi Sunak or from Swella Braverman. It's certainly a step in the right direction, I think, isn't it? Step in the right direction, well commit, but let's wait and see what happens now. OK. Alp Mehmet, Chair of Migration Watch, thank you very much indeed. We'll take your calls on this, of course, as well. 0344 1000 uh, Here's another one, a text uh, on the subject of Christmas post. Mike, last year, seven of the Christmas cards I sent all arrived on the 15th of January. So far this year, we have only received four. Usually we get around 40. My mother posted hers two weeks ago and we're still waiting. Next year, I don't think I'll bother sending any. I'll just hand deliver a few in the summer. Well, exactly. I mean, that is the way people are going. But we want to hear your stories. We've got loads of you who want to talk to me about this stuff. Uh, we will be talking about the parcel service. We will be talking about the migrant crisis. And also, of course, we will be taking more and more of your calls on the NHS as well. 
this week there's going to be an ambulance strike. Brilliant, isn't it? This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Breaking news, Jeremy Hunt will set out a spring budget on March the 15th, 2023. Seems a long way off, doesn't it? Blimey. Uh, there's a lot going on between now and then, Jeremy, so uh, don't get too carried away with it. I'll tell you what we are going to do coming up very shortly. Ben Clapworthy is here from The Times. He's got a front-page story today. Airport strikes to wreak havoc. Fears of two-hour queues at passport control as Border Force staff walk out over the festive period. Well, Ben, as ever, welcome. Thank you very much. Before we get started, though, let's check in uh, with the advent calendar uh, that we put up together, of course, for the strike of the day, because it's December the 19th. Hard to believe. Christmas week. Let's have a look and see what's going on. Here it is. Uh, a strike a day, of course, we were told at the beginning of December, all the way up until December the 24th, when Christmas Eve uh, we'll see yet another rail strike. Today, uh, we've got the Highlands and Islands airports, one strike, that's Unite. Uh, members of Unite who work at the Highlands and Islands airports in Scotland are not uh, working. The 11 airports affected are Barra, Benbecula, Campbelltown, Dundee, Inverness, Isla, Kirkwall, Stornoway, Sumborough, Tyree and Wick. Now, just while I read those, because I bet somebody English would have got most of those wrong. Civil service strike as well. PCS staff at the RPA. What's the RPA? They're on strike. Uh, and the DVSA driving examiners are to strike in the northwest Yorkshire and Humber and North Wales as well. So bad luck if you're trying to get a, uh, a driving license or a driving test done. Royal Payments Agency, did you say? Rural Payments Agency, okay. Don't know what that is, but I'm sure it's probably a problem for people in the rural area trying to get paid. That would be, yeah. <laughs> anyway, public service unions. What can you do, Ben? A very good morning to you. Good morning. So uh, we've managed to get through last week. We had a live show in Waterloo, which wasn't too badly affected by the RMT strike on Friday, but Saturday wasn't a good day. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's now no more train strikes from the RMT until Christmas Eve. I think is that right? Well, there's also a ban on overtime. That's that's now that is affecting services this morning Mm. but yes actual strike action Christmas Eve as you say this morning Network Rail uh, saying basically that Mick Lynch's claims the boss of the IMT that the uh, Christmas Eve strikes won't affect passenger services is nonsense and that the last trains will leave in some places earlier than but no later than three o'clock in the vast majority of places on Christmas Eve. Mm. Worth remembering, and I, I'm sick to death of people saying, well, you should have travelled home early. Like, people don't travel on Christmas Eve, everyone's at home. No, no, no. Nonsense. There's a lot of people who have jobs that yeah. require them well, to yeah. work on Christmas Eve, not until three o'clock, mm. but the whole day, and who are going to be affected by this. Well, in fact, I mean, we had somebody in here from Borough Market the other day. Uh, they're open on Christmas Eve, but they're open until three o'clock. So if you happen to work there, until you, three you're not getting away from there until at least half past three, maybe quarter to four, at which point there's no train. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And this idea that, yes, no, you know, a very <laughs> typical keyboard warrior saying, oh, you know, nobody works on Christmas Eve mm. past lunchtime is utter yeah. nonsense. Well, it's like the kind of people complaining about the piece we're doing today about parcels going missing because there's a kind of an epidemic of people ordering things online and them never arriving. I'm sure it's probably happened to you where you get a picture from the courier company going, well, we delivered it. And you go, well, that's not my house. Well, You're taking a picture or- of your foot on the floor uh, of somebody else's step. Or I live in a building of flats yeah. and I get the Amazon all the time. It says handed to resident. Yeah. It's like I'm, I'm the 
recipient of the parcel and it's not outside my door and it wasn't handed to yeah. me. You tell them that and they get, when you go downstairs and inevitably can't right. find where they've put it and the customer services just brush you off yeah. with, oh, well, that's what the courier said. Yeah, well, it says here it was delivered. Well, fine, but you delivered it to the wrong person, so technically you haven't actually delivered, delivered it, it at all to me. Rather like the services being provided by many of these travelling unions. Uh, the airport strikes, the latest to come. Um, and that's is that going to be... Earlier than Christmas Eve, what's the actual uh, strike date Yes, so that's from Friday. This is going to affect people coming into the country. So actually, the airlines and airport bosses aren't too worried about the wave of action, which is from the 23rd uh, through to the very early on the 27th. It's then the action leading up to and including New Year's Eve that they're worried about because... An estimated 5 million people are going to be spending Christmas abroad, coming back in that period mm. and them finding that there's no, that the passport border force strikes are happening. Um, yes, there are troops uh, and civil servants who are going to backfill them, but they can't do all jobs. Routinely, I am told in meetings about this, the contingency planning, they are talking about two hour mm. queues. Um, this is coming in. This is coming in. Right. If things back up, then there will be no option but to hold passengers on planes, which will obviously then have a knock-on with people mm. departing. So there is a lot of unknown. As we knew back when the rail strikes first happened, I sat here and said, well, we don't know the full extent of the, the scale of the issue. In theory, a 1,000 uh, border force officers will walk out at the UK's biggest airport. The reality is, though, until that strike mm. starts on Friday, nobody knows exactly how many people will, will or will not turn up mm. for work. Incredible, isn't it? And I love this from, I know it's not entirely just travel that's going on strike because we've got an ambulance strike on Wednesday. Patients told they should, quote, make their own way to hospital. Yes, this was Oliver Dowden that's yesterday. That's great, isn't it? Uh, in the, on the morning media round, he he did say, of course, if you're if you're dying, call nine nine nine. But basically, if you if you would normally call an ambulance and you can make your own way to hospital, you should. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'd say if you can make your own way to hospital, you probably don't need to go. True. I mean, I know that you you'll say, well, hang on, you might have some kind of emergency that you've cut your finger or something and you can't get a doctor. But you know, at the end of the day, if you if you can make your own way. You don't really need to go. Well, I would say if you can make your own way, you should be made. If you if you need attention, but you can make your own way, yeah. you should be doing that anyway to free up the ambulances for people. Yeah, but then you been... get there and you can't find a parking spot, so you have to drive round and round and round and round. And then meanwhile, you pay fifteen pounds yeah, to park, and, and plus the congestion charge. And you know, meanwhile, your your situation is deteriorating. I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, I do. I'm afraid. I, I take your point. Yeah, it really is. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the next time that we will have a kind of normal service is now resumed situation is indeterminate, isn't it? Because there's a, a COBRA meeting, I'm told here by you, in your piece. Uh, Steve Barkley, the health secretary, said to be writing to the unions, mm-hmm. calling for urgent talks on all manner of things. But... I mean, Christmas week, you're not going to get many talks, are you? No, I think on Friday, going back to the railways, Mick Lynch said that there was hope of a resolution mm. this week. I mean, that will need to be... You sure he didn't mean hope of a revolution? Well, <laughs> maybe. <not> a resolution. <laughs> hope, of a, hope of a revolution to, uh, to have a resolution yes. uh, this week. But while I've just said a lot of people uh, do, still need to work on Christmas Eve, there's yeah. also a very large part of the population who start winding down from, well, about three o'clock on last Friday. Yes. 
so there is, it is, I think this week's going to be difficult. Then we get into January strikes. There's a week uh, starting January the 2nd of strikes on the railways, which is basically going to replicate what we had last week. Yeah. So a lot of disruption. Then there's issues with Eurostar on the 26th of December because yeah. of uh, the network rail strikes. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of normality, the other thing is each union keeps announcing more action. So across the piece, we're looking like this is now going to go well on into into the new year. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Ben, thanks very much indeed. Ben Clapworthy from The Times there with the latest doom and gloom on the travel front. Uh, you can just have to do what you can, really, don't you? This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Loads of you want to get in touch on this parcel front, but there's another issue that we need to raise today, um, and that is, of course, uh, who's got the worst Christmas tree in Britain? Uh, because there's a story uh, doing the rounds at the moment, and it comes from a place called Poundbury, uh, which is near Dorchester in Dorset, right? You might remember uh, this is uh, the Prince Charles's sort of community. is now the King's Model Village. It's a place where people go and live. It's all, like, eco-friendly. It's very nice. Uh, but the people there have said that they've got a miserable Christmas tree. Here it is. I don't think it actually looks that bad. But I think the lights are pretty naff. There's no doubt that the lights have not been done terribly well. That may be something to do with some kind of eco-nonsense. But apparently uh, the locals are saying it's the most miserable tree. Uh, it's all been put up in a bit of a haphazard fashion, they say. Solar-powered lights have been hung up, so they haven't got proper uh, things there. But the, the, the locals are saying, we waited for the lights to arrive, and when they finally did, it's just a single string of lights that you can barely see. It's incredibly disappointing. So, uh, do the visitors and the residents of Poundbury have it right that this is the worst Christmas tree uh, ever? Because I'll tell you what, I've got a challenge for them, because uh, I've got one uh, that you might think is actually worse. And this is a Christmas tree uh, that is not too unfamiliar to me. This is a Christmas tree picture that I actually took, right? Um, because this tree was described by one Kevin O'Sullivan, uh, my partner in crime the Thought Police, who we did a live show the other day, as the worst Christmas tree he'd ever seen. Now, this uh, is my Christmas tree, but it's an outside tree, so I don't want you to get too carried away. Let's put the two together and see which one you think is actually worse. You can, of course, send answers on a postcard. There you go. Yeah, I think mine's definitely worse. Definitely. This is not the only Christmas tree I've got, but, but yeah, there's, there is something not quite right about it. I think Poundbury doesn't look too bad compared to that one. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, we're ready to talk very shortly, of course, to our next guest, John Ashmore, uh, who is here to talk about the NHS, because, uh, as we said, there's an ambulance strike coming on Wednesday, the nurses' strike last Thursday. I think there's another nurses' strike coming, is there not, uh, on Wednesday as well? We shall see. Let's talk to John Ashmore, who's editor of CapEx, because uh, the NHS is in the firing line all the time, but still, there's things you can't really say about it. John, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, uh, do, t do tell us why uh, somehow heresy is, is a word that's now being bandied about when it comes to the NHS. Yeah, uh, first I should apologise for the lighting here. Sorry about that. Are you, um, are you in some kind of eco zone or something? You're not allowed I to put the yeah, lights on. Yeah, hey? yeah, yeah. For heaven's um, sake. So I wrote a piece yesterday about this because the Labour Shadow Health Secretary where Streeting had done a speech last week mm. saying that uh, it, he was not going to pretend that the NHS is the envy of the world. Um, and he's been saying quite a few things like this. He's saying this is a service, not a shrine. Mm. That was another quite pithy phrase. Um, and I said it was quite a welcome 
uh, thing to hear from the Labour front bench because for so long we've had this kind of debate about the health service where it really seems to just be about funding whether or not the, the Conservatives are putting an adequate amount of money in right. um, and we need to move on from that and, and think about what it is we expect the NHS to do, um, what it's capable of doing in the light of demographic change in this country. We just have far, far more people going through the doors of the health service than we did even, say, 10 years ago. Um, and the, the majority of patients with the most acute needs are older people, people over 65 and 75. And it's that proportion of the population that is only going to grow in the coming years. Um, so I think we just need to stop pretending that the NHS is, as, as Wes Streeting says, we need to stop pretending that the NHS is the kind of jewel in the crown of the UK. Almost no other Western country that I know of replicates the model that we have, mm. but they all manage to have universal care with different models. Um, I also think we need to get away from the idea that there are only two alternatives. One is the NHS and the other is the American system right. where you have to pay and a lot of people don't have health insurance. No one in their right mind wants that system. It's terrible. It's not universal. It's extremely expensive. Americans still end up spending a lot of public money on healthcare for mm. a very spotty system. So it's not about the USA versus the UK model. Um, but we can look at so other countries, you know, France, Germany, Switzerland, Singapore, Australia, all sorts of places that do things differently to the NHS mm. and get better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, it is ridiculous where comparisons are made because the people who defend the way the NHS works don't ever address the fact that that would be fine if it did work. But the fact is, it doesn't mm. work. So the theory of the NHS is terrific. In practice, it's an absolute nightmare. Well, I think that some aspects of it obviously work well. And it, I, I'm not for one moment denigrating people who work in the health service. Two of well, my I think you should. Another is a nurse. Yeah, I think you should, John. I think I think the trouble is every conversation starts like that because you don't want to be seen yeah. to be being exactly. critical. But there are plenty. Yeah. There are plenty of people in the NHS who don't do their jobs very well, and there are plenty of people who should be sure. denigrated, and probably quite a few of them who should be fired. <laughs> well, it's an organisation with over a million employees, so yeah. it would be unreal if every single one of them was a saint or an angel. Um, I think the thing to bear in mind is that. They're people like everyone else, and they respond to stress, pressure, structural problems that are above them, and those kind of big picture things I mentioned at the beginning, mm. to do with the sheer volume and demand um, for the service. So I have a lot of sympathy for them. Um, but yeah, I think we just need to, to get away from the sort of re religiosity about the NHS, um, treating it as if it's... Mm. You know, as if, like you say, as if any criticism is an attack on staff when yeah. it's anything of the kind, it's nothing of the kind. The other thing I mention is that the kind of the big left wing critique of NHS reform is always that it's about creeping privatisation, mm. that we do want to turn it into America. But what we're seeing now in the UK is an increasing number of people are turning to the private sector for their own health yeah. um, care because they don't have any alternative. They probably support the NHS. They would rather use the NHS. They've paid their taxes in order to use it. But if you want to be seen, particularly by a GP, I had this experience last week. I just couldn't get a slot at my GP. I ended up just doing nothing, yeah. sort of suffering for a few days. Um, and a lot of people are having to having to go private. Uh, you're seeing a lot of people crowdfunding their yeah. care as well, which is something, again, you're more used to seeing in the States than here. So yeah. 
de facto a lot of people are having to use private, even if they would rather use uh, the public system. Yeah, but also we've got so much waste in the system which nobody will address. You know, we know every single day of the week we could, I could do it every day, you know, NHS ridiculous job offer of the week. You yeah. know, last week it was the one about the chief of lived experience for 115 grand. <laughs> you know, people yeah. who work on, you know, social media for Guy's Hospital getting paid more than the actual nurses that do the care. You know, there's any number of things where you've got the ambulances going on strike this week uh, and government ministers saying, you know, perhaps you should just get yourself to hospital by whichever means you can. Well, if you're lying there in some kind of, you know, destitute, painful state, you may not be able to get yourself to hospital. You yeah. know, people trapped in hospital at Christmas by NHS strikes. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's pathetic. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned trapped in hospital because this is one of the sort of less uh, obvious issues um, that is really, really important, which is the length of time it takes to move people from the NHS into other settings, mm. be that home or social care. I do think if we were to invest, we talk about NHS funding as if mm. it's just putting money into hospitals. I think you could put money elsewhere, say into the social care system, and it would alleviate mm. pressure on the NHS by being able to move people from beds when they don't need to be in hospital anymore into a different setting. Yeah. The thing is it costs an enormous amount of money to keep someone in an NHS bed even for one day. So the more people, the more we can get that kind of chain moving more quickly, yeah. the better. But these are these are pretty like intractable long-term problems. In a, and it's a very big, quite monolithic organisation. So I think the idea that if we kind of click our fingers and, and throw a bit more money, things will suddenly get better is slightly illusory. This is kind of a long haul. And the thing that's concerning to me is the government's kind of seems to have given up on reform. In a whole host of areas, there's yeah. only two years to go to the election. They're thinking, right, let's just stick to what we've already got. But to my mind, I look at the NHS and I think we've got to start that process as soon as possible. Because oh, I think so. I it's think just so. not working at the moment and it's failing people. Absolutely right. But as, as we've said, you know, reform is a dirty word and nobody wants to do it and everybody wants to stand in the way of it. But listen, John, we must talk about it some more because we're out of time right now. John Ashmore, editor of CapEx, there, talking about why the heresy and that exists around uh, somehow com complaining and uh, suggesting that the NHS doesn't work is still a problem. And it shouldn't be, because let's face it, it doesn't work. It's as simple as that. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll keep taking your calls. We'll keep taking your stories as well. We might keep this going all week because this parcel problem is a massive problem up and down the country. People are just not getting deliveries. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.